Let me guess one o'clock. Um, his name is Logan Matashami. And uh, while he said a lot of people were above my head, he's actually like super knowledgeable in the data. And I loved it just because um, most of us are all talking about when's the economy going to crash and are we in a bubble and is real estate going to go down and is it the time to buy all this stuff. And Logan can tell you because he is a self-proclaimed data nerd. He's looking at all the statistics. He has everything charted and graphed and mapped out. And uh, he was able to give us some really good information that was backed by facts and backed by trends, uh, not just what most of us are doing, which is just throwing around our opinion. So, Yeah, super awesome. Um, I definitely think we'll continue to have him on because he's a plethora of information. We could have gone five hours on the podcast and gone off so many different topics. But the cool thing about it is um, there's so much conversation around, you know, interest rates going to go up, is the housing going to collapse, is the economy going to collapse, you know, what about the federal spending and all this stuff. So, you know, I'm the type of person, that's why I love him, is, you know, I don't watch the news. I just literally look at data and information. That's what this guy does. He looks at charts, looks at graphs. He's a history buff, so basically loves to go back, look at history, compare to what's going on then, what's going on today. So you're just going to get basically the real deal. Um, if you don't like his opinion, then probably you don't like charts and graphs and you don't like the reality. Well, I think more than anything, it's just have you heard of Logan? Because um, it's funny because we had a little bit of like uh, envy over here in our office with Monty and hopefully with Nick and um, a lot of people that listen to a lot of what he says. So Logan used to be in the mortgage business. He retired last year and then just went full time into data. He is uh, an analyst at Housing Wire. He is regularly the lead analyst at Housing Wire. He also is on Bloomberg Financial, frequently uh, speaking on the housing market. He he definitely uh, studies all aspects of the economy, but he specializes in the housing market and a lot of the things that he does for Housing Wire and on Bloomberg and some other things. But he, he talks a lot about a lot of different things. Penny asked him about a lot of like trending topics right now. I mean, not just our interest rates going up. Is it a good time to buy? Uh, what it, his thoughts on cryptocurrency? Um, a just lot a, of really just cool a things. Just a gamut yeah. stuff, and honestly, that's why I'd like to have him come back. We can dive into other things. But I think that if you haven't heard of him, I think you're gonna start hearing more of him because he basically was doing this, but now he's gonna go full time even more. So I think you're gonna see him more and more. And the other thing I will say is that if you don't even get Housing Wire's free email blast, you should go on their website and sign up for it, even if you don't want to pay for the membership, because they give you these um, hot kind of driving topics of what's going on, these great little leads. So I think they, honestly, I might keep getting them every year, every day. So you got to get like stuff ready to come in, what topics trending. If you're in real estate or have any, you know, own any property, I think it's a really good site for information. But um, otherwise, super excited for him to come on. He's definitely very, very, very passionate about what he does. You can tell, you'll see it. Um, he's not doing this really uh, because this is a job. He's doing this because this is really what he loves to do. And he, he's like, very, like very you said, it's a, it's a passion. It's, it was a hobby of his, and then he decided to take it full time. So you can definitely tell. And I just love the way that he analyzes data. I look at his stories on Instagram. You can go to his website where he publishes various things. You can see him on Housing Wire. I 
do believe that probably a lot of his um, stuff you have to pay to get, but I would say that it would be well worth the money to get this because he is a data freak. Like, he is constantly looking at data, and I think that's the only way any of us should be uh, talking about the economy or what's happening, and we should all definitely get more educated instead of just getting opinions of everyone around us who aren't looking at the data like we're looking at. Yeah, and I would say, you know, go on and social media, support him, follow him, because this is somebody I think that you would get some value out of. And like I always tell everybody, I, I listen to people across the gamut, uh, right side, left side, in the middle, whether that's just, you could be an economist and think one way, an economist another one. Um, so, and I think he does pay attention to, to the gold bugs, to the crypto bugs, to the real estate people, to the doom and gloomers, to, oh my gosh, I got this real estate post, the market's going to crash because I'm trying to get views. And, um, but I think he gets in some uh, heated conversations with people too if you watch him because, like he said, he thinks people are just throwing stuff out there to get ratings and um, views rather than giving you guys insight. So without further ado, let's jump in. Awesome. Well, Logan, thank you for coming on today. Um, we're excited to kind of hear your take on the economy and all the craziness that's happening. I'm sure this is like something that's been, I feel like this is actually something that hasn't been seen before. I mean, like we were just talking about earlier, all the fundamentals are just a lot different than we've seen in the past. So um, we're excited to have you on today and kind of get your thoughts and uh, what you're seeing. Yes, my pleasure. And yes, it's the most unique period uh, in, in history because, you know, I mean, naturally, this is our first pandemic, but also it ran into a very, very unique uh, uh, demographic patch for America. And like I always said, America's strength is that it has a massive young replacement workforce. Uh, Japan, China, Europe, none of these countries have a growing prime age labor force. This is why so much of my work over the years is that years 2020 to 2024 is going to be different because you know, in 2008, prime age labor force for the first time since 1979 declined. And then you just kind of work your household formation into this massive demographic patch. And you could just see it, not just in housing data, but the labor data, all these things are much different than what we saw in the great financial crisis. Could you jump in just before we dive into all the fun nuggets of what you like to talk about, I love to talk about, so that's cool. Um, just a little bit about your background and like how you landed here today to be you know, if you want to call it like a market geek or whatever, which I, I don't think it's a geek. I just think you just love history and you love to talk about it. So I've been in the mortgage business for 24 years. Last year, I retired. Uh, I started a financial blog in 2010. Um, so I'm just kind of a big data nerd. And uh, over time, it just evolved into more of an analytical work. And really, after 20, kind of 15, I thought, let's just do it with everything, not just housing data. We're going to track economic data and use models. So it's just a passion of mine. And, you know, with housing, there was what we call the grifting of housing, YouTube sites, crash grids, because after the bubble crash, people thought, let's just make a name for ourselves and call for the next crash. So a lot of my work is that, you know, years 2020 to 2024 is going to be different. So we want to work our way in this economy, which was we just had the longest economic and job expansion in history with recession calls every seven minutes. So <laughs> COVID, yeah, COVID was react. So for myself, uh, now I'm lead analyst for Housing Wire. You know, the, I, I talked about the chaos theory, like this event is different. U.S. economic data was actually good in January and February of 2020. So you're not going to get your clues from there. But when this happens, 
stock market to fall, bond market to fall, U.S. will be in a recession, but don't kind of overreact. And then on April 7th, uh, 2020, for Housing Wire, I wrote an, a, a model, the America's Back Economic Model. You follow these data lines and dates. I gave dates. The only thing I didn't do is make a coloring book to make it that easy. And then just follow this, and this data will look like this. And when it happens, you got to go with it. So naturally, people freaked out because they're stuck in 2008 mode. Within six weeks, people started buying homes again. We had a V-shaped recovery in housing. The U.S. housing market is actually the most outperforming economic sector in the world. It makes sense. Years 2020 to 2024, historically speaking, is the most unique demographic patch ever. So what I mean demographic patch, ages 27 to 33 now are the biggest in U.S. history. First time median home buyer is 33. We have the lowest mortgage rates ever recorded in history. So it's a very healthy backdrop to have replacement demand. I don't like, I don't use the term boom. I just like replacement demand steady. So demand picks up a little bit. Happened right before COVID happened. Housing authentically breaked out for the first time in more than 15 years. Then we had the little slowdown, right? People were panicking, hoarding toilet paper. Think about all those American citizens that bought homes last year and don't have to deal with this mess right now. And then it just simply looks exactly where it should have, home sales, uh, housing starts, new home sales. The problem now is that home prices are growing too fast. And that was the biggest concern that I would have. Because when you have these mega forces all working together, it's an unhealthy backdrop for home price growth. And we're seeing that now. So I got a couple of questions for you. Um, I think the biggest, well, one of the biggest Google terms is, you know, are we in a bubble? Is this going to crash? And you mentioned, um, obviously, we know there's an inventory problem, but I kind of want to go back to the last recession because I just look at data and the data says, you know, from two, and you know this better than I do, so correct me, is from 2008 to about 2012, 13, nobody really built. Right? So we didn't build and stuff like that. Do you think that's a huge effect right now like one of the big problems right now we're having so one of the working theories i had in the last expansion is that i've said we're gonna have the weakest housing recovery ever you know that's new home sales housing starts mortgage demand if you actually look at mortgage debt from like the peak it was in 2006 and 7 to now there's no growth especially when you adjust it to inflation it makes sense there's a certain equilibrium with supply and demand post-1996. And I like to use 1996 because mortgage rates made another uh, leg lower, adjusting to population, the labor force grew. So it's really hard to have uh, less than 4 million home sales uh, post-1996. It authentically only happened one time. In 2008, we had a few months under 4 million. Uh, we had the COVID-19 one-month delay. And then the, after the home buyer tax credit in 2010, we sales went up and just fell down. Outside yep. of that, 2008 was it. So the builders, which, which is always my big debate with my fellow housing economist friends, I've always said, we're never going to have housing starts get to 1.5 million until years 2020 to 2024. People thought that was crazy because, you know, people have to build. Builders only build off of their own demand curve, right? So if you look at monthly supply, and I, I've used this for many years, monthly supply for the builders were, was always higher in 2008 to 2019 than what we saw from like 1996 to 2005. So there was no, you know, super growth demand, even though we had an 82% decline in sales. So naturally they just build, build, build. There was a few hiccups here and there when rates rose and then 2018 happened. So 2018, 
5% mortgage rates created a supply spike for the builders. Builder stocks were down 30 to 40% from the high. But back then I said, listen, we're running into a better demographic patch. It was the weakest new home sales cycle. So housing starts aren't overbuilt. Then 2020 happened, boom. Housing starts were up 40% year over year. You see the breakout. Monthly supply really broke down lower. The demand is there now. So it's problematic in the sense that the builders, even if they built more homes, housing tenure is the real issue here. People are staying in their homes longer and longer. From 1985 to 2007, it was five years. From 2008 to 2021, right now, we're running 10 years. The baby boomers aren't downsizing. People are just staying in their homes, so the turnover ratio is much less. And now you have these people who have fixed low debt costs versus rising wages. So now you have a sub, uh, basically majority of America has sub three, three and a half percent interest rates. So they're very, very, in a, in, I mean, they're in a very good spot. Fixed low debt costs, rising wages, nested equity. You need a reason to move. So ages 30 to 39, move up buyers, people, you know, having, it's the same skit I do at every conference I speak at. People rent, they date, they mate, they get married. Three and a half years after marriage, they have kids. It's a year's 2020 to 2024 story where you get a, probably a little bit more move up buyers. And then we're stuck here. And that's the problem that the builders will never build enough because guess what? The new home sales sector, their biggest competition is the existing home sales market, right? Yeah. Um, cheaper homes geographically out there. So in a sense, they're building soldiers to fight against them going out. So you have to be mindful that the builders are limited in terms of what they can do. And when rates rise again and supply goes up, they're just going to hold back on construction. This is, I think, a very interesting topic with economists because they always say we underbuilt. And I actually don't, I, I, I don't agree with that. Builders only build off of their own demand. They don't care about the existing home sales. That's their competition. So you had all these factors coming into 2020 to 2024. And now we're stuck with this. And if you look at total inventory in America from 2014. That was, the, that was the peak in the previous expansion after the housing bubble crash. Total inventory has been falling every year. Purchase application data has been rising every year since 2014. Then COVID hit, you get a little bit more demand, you have an inventory crunch. So if this is not like a credit boom, we're not, we're not having a credit boom and sales are really taking off. We have an inventory crunch. So I say, if you guys are old enough to remember the 1980s, Hungry, hungry hippo. That little game where there was a bunch of hippos and you, 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 plant, you smack the thing and you're trying to get balls. Used to have 10 balls, now you have seven, now you have five, now you got one. So the price growth is really hot, but the demand is like we're going to be a little bit over than uh, 2020 levels in sales. And that's why when I go on Bloomberg and everywhere, I say this is an unhealthy market because people just want somewhere to live. And the grifting of housing became like, Everything is an investment, so why would you pay for a house if you're going to get a 40% crash? I didn't realize this, but Susie Orman told people, don't buy a house because home prices are going to crash 50% last year. Like, wait until December. Like, where'd she come up with that number? <laughs> I that one, yeah. I was just like, where'd you come up with the 50% number? So the problem is we've been inundated by what I call the housing bubble boys. Bunch of grifting. They're not data analysts. You can see this by how they talk about data. And it was the biggest whiff in history because what economics itself is demographics and productivity, but housing economics, demographics, mortgage rates. That's when you run up first. Then you look at housing tenure. 
Then you look at jobs. Even my economist friends last year is like, why are people buying homes? There's 20 to 30 million people unemployed. Well, there's 133 million people still working. And the people that lost majority of the jobs, like 84% of them, were tied to renter financial profiles. And by the time October came, the people that made over $60,000, most of them got their jobs back. Average homeowner in America makes over 100,000. So these people are pretty much set. I mean, there's always some dislocation. So the crash didn't happen last year. So what housing bubble boys do is they move the goalposts. So they said, okay, well, it's forbearance. As soon as forbearance comes next year, housing is going to go down 40 or 50%. Okay, they keep on using these 40 or 50% numbers. I, I find it fascinating that this is randomly throw up these numbers and don't have a model for them. So I said, okay, let's, let's get ahead of this. I'm going to call them the forbearance crash bros. It's a bunch of guys <laughs> on YouTube, a bunch of people on Twitter, and now there's a few on Clubhouse, and they're like, oh, no, no, forbearance, and people are going to crash. And that's like, it's only in America where we have people that demand is stable, and they think because demand is stable, that means it's a 40 or 50% crash. Like, these people are so gone from reality, and I think professionally, they inside, they know they're wrong. They just have to grift out crashes, crashes, crashes. And it didn't happen because majority of Americans really don't care what they say. Housing is a cost of shelter. They need somewhere to live. Millions and millions of millions of Americans buy homes a year. Even, the, even the, after the housing financial crash, we still had over uh, more than uh, 4.1 million total home sales, new and existing homes together. Yeah. So it didn't work out. So forbearance in itself, I, I've written many articles about this last year. We're still rolling into this. I said, forbearance is not going to be the issue, number one is that these people are not stressed, right? You know, some of them lost their jobs, but a lot of people took forbearance initially. They probably didn't need it. So forbearance itself was never bigger than the shadow inventory was in 2012. That's when demand was lower back then. Demand's better now, and th these people will get off of forbearance on their own. People said, no, their debt-to-income ratio high, the Americans are poor, they're uneducated, student loan debt crisis, yeah, yeah, yeah. Forbearance has been cut in half. We were near 5 million, we're about 2.2 million, Within one year, these people were talking about 10, 15, 20 million people foreclosing. The exact opposite happened because they're not economists, they're not data analysts. You can see that they actually don't have any economic models. So they just randomly throw stuff and it was the biggest whiff ever recorded in history because you went from a bubble crash, which is most housing bubble people use 2012 as their point. So you need about now, if it's been so long for them, you need a 76.5% crash in home prices in one year to justify the bubble talk since 2012. So the exact opposite. Housing became the outperforming sector and home prices are growing too hot. So if you take, let's say, a 20% average, now it's like a 96% crash at this point. This is how wrong because these people do not believe in economic models. I, was, I, I have two things I say. Believe in people who believe in economic models right? Because economics done right is boring. And always be the detective. Don't be the troll. Don't plaster your face and be left behind when your country is fighting this crisis. Don't do it because you're going to have to walk the rest of your life saying, oh yeah, I thought the U.S. was going to collapse. And there's no throne to sit on. And look where we're here, right? The economy's recovered. We're early in an economic expansion and we haven't even fully opened the, uh, the economy yet. Yeah. So we have good demographics, low rates, fiscal, monetary, and uh, policies are helpful, and we're just going to push forward. And it was the big whiff. And now what are they going to do? They have to stick to their story, or they're going to say, you know what, we were just trolling. We didn't really mean it.
Yeah, I think most of us have been conditioned because I feel like this is what I hear from all of my clients too, and they'll say, oh, there's a craft every 10 years. We're overdue for a crash. It's time. So I think we're all looking for that next little piece of information that's going to justify the thing that's already been put into our mind. So, you know, COVID, oh, it's going to be a crash. Oh, rates are starting to tick up. Is this it? Are, are rates going to go to 7%? Are we all going to lose our house? You know, I mean, we've got this is it's I I don't follow a lot of people on the internet because I think most of most of the stuff is junk out there. So I didn't realize how bad it was until I went to an, a housing uh, conference with uh, real estate investors and Zillow and all these other people in there. And the so-called real estate expert, the investor expert, went on a tirade that we're going to have like a fifty or sixty percent crash uh, uh, here in California. We're on borrowed time. Inflation is going to take off. There's a group of people I call the anti-central bank fanatics. These are the greatest American bears of all time. They, they harp about inflation and rates going up. If you look at the 10-year yield from 1981 on, it has been in a downward slope. It has never broken that. Older countries do not really produce high growth or high inflation. So a lot of these people are talking about 7 8 9% interest rates, even though the downtrend has never been broken. So what happened in 2018 is that I'm starting to figure it out. Everybody started to get it, tried ahead of this because of the 10-year crash or whatever. They created this, oh, here it comes. But they never actually read that it was the weakest recovery ever. So there's no real credit boom. And you're running into a the biggest demographic patch ever recorded in history and rates are low. That's a very, very hard way to get 50 or 60% national home price crisis. Or some people say it's regional because the credit quality was good. Like, and that's a big thing of my work. Fixed slow debt costs versus rising wages. You look at the originations, you see very high FICO scores, like the highest ever. Um, but you also see the quality of debt. And this is not, the lack of having a financial uh, uh, lending background or a debt structure background really shows because the debt is very vanilla, right? It's yeah. just mostly 30 yeah. fixed products. There are yeah. no exotic loan debt structures for this impending collapse of everybody with 50 or 60% equity foreclosing on their homes. 38% of all homes are, have no mortgage on them. It was a, just a disaster of a call. And now it's like, what do we do now? What do we tell our people? We told the crash was happening in 2018, 1920. I mean, even 5% mortgage rates in 2019, we still had 6 million total home sales new and existing together. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head though, is that most of us are you know, going out there spewing this information and we really have zero data to back it. We haven't done any research. We haven't done any studying. All we've done is listen to everybody around us that's kind of changed our opinion about all these crazy things that are happening. And that those people don't have any data either. So where would you have somebody start, like, you know, just beginner uh, to kind of find like accurate, good data? So my stuff is open to the public outside of housing wire housing wire has me on a paywall all i do is look at charts historical charts on everything data now that i retired um that's pretty much all i do so what i show people are just data and what it means what happened in 2002 to 2005 and this is how i explain that period home prices um went above per capita income and I use this chart a lot. And, you know, the, uh, there's an article I wrote on my blog, you know, home prices growing too hot. In there, you could actually see per capita income went well above home prices in 2002 to 2005. So real home prices speculate. That's a bubble is a very short term period of time where 
you see a, a credit boom or speculation boom. So what happened was that the quality of debt didn't facilitate a longer term sales trend. It's like the exact opposite this time. Home prices finally caught up to per capita income. Mortgage rates are about three to three and a half percent lower. And you have a demographic patch that gives you good replacement buyers. So if you try to compare now, now historically bubbles don't happen in the same sector back to back, like that's a given, um, but you could actually see it visually see it because I know charts aren't for everyone, but if you could visually see what the difference was then and now you could see why there was no crash in 2017, no crash in 2018, 19, but 2020 to 2024, you would just have a little bit more replacement buyers. Demand picks up a little bit more, but housing tenures, prices are going, you know, they're escalating higher. But if you look at our prices, like our real home price growth, you compare them to Canada, Australia, New Zealand, France, the UK, we're so far behind them. And people have been talking about Canada's going to collapse. Eddie. The Canada bubble has been going on for like 16 years now. The Australian yeah. bubble has been going on for 16 years. You know, France, France's home prices are, 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 are hotter than ours. It's a yeah. different thing. So the lack of training and the lack of discipline caught up to these people and we have this and for the most part the majority of americans they don't care they just buy homes like susie orman yeah. if, if everybody listened to susie orman we wouldn't have uh more americans buying homes in 2020 and in 2021 more than any period from 2008 to 2019 and that's the thing is that um the grifting of housing just finally caught up and it just became just the biggest whiff in history because you can see these people, they don't talk about demographics first. They don't talk about mortgage rates or per capita income. There's all these factors you put into this. They say, well, nominal home prices are back to 2006 levels. Well, that was a bubble then and here's a bubble now. So from 2016 and on, the crash is gonna go back to 1996 levels, never happened. Now it's been so long that, well, it's 2012, didn't happen again. Now COVID, Home, home prices are going to crash 50 didn't happen at some point you have to realize that these people are tricking you right and i don't even think they believe it i mean i know some of them don't believe it right they just say hey listen i can't do anything i gotta i gotta get viewership man i gotta talk about crashing so again economics done right terribly boring my blog is open to the public you could just go in there and read it's not very exciting but there's tons of data twitter account tons of chart sheets today it's not just housing it's all of economic models Think about, I was the only person that I know last year in April who said, we're going to write, we're going to recover this, th this year, just follow these things and you'll be fine, but you got to follow these data lines. And if they get better, you got to go with it. And in 2021, the bond yield should get up to what, 160 and things are going to recover. Believe in people that got it right, because they could connect the dots and show you why. If they're just speculating like Susie Orman's 50% home price grass by December, you got to you got to create a model for people to, to go with and then you have something to work with. So question for you, um, switching it up a little bit, the debt. So the big topic, obviously, I think is is we had a housing bubble, but also all the money that's being printed. Um, how are we going to pay it back? How can we afford it? Are our interest rates going to go up? So I want to get your take on. Are you ready for this one? I can tell. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I really want to hear your take on the debt this, because this is like uh, the biggest topic. The worst, fanatical, craziest persons that I know are the people that are infatuated with federal debt, and it has been a complete disaster 
going for decades now. So if you look at interest rates in the bond market, since 1981, federal debt has been increasing. Interest rates have been falling. A six-year-old, I always say, I use a six-year-old because I got a six-year-old one time, a family relative, and I said, can you look at this? What, what do you see? Debt goes up, interest rates go down, right? The United States is the only economic superpower left. Our, we are the reserve currency of the world. To think that Canada or Mexico are going to overtake us, that our currency is going to collapse and, you know, Japan is going to buy us or uh, Greece is going to be a more powerful. These people are out of their minds. These are the anti-central bank fanatics. We're heading towards 71 to $80 trillion of debt this century. I wrote an article about this in 2019. I said 71 trillion in debt by 2060. I even have a hashtag about that. It's going to happen because guess what? All these countries have very debt loads, uh, debt to GDP loads. Japan's 250% debt to GDP. We can't even catch them and they're borrowing at rates lower than us. These people are typically conservative gold bugs, anti-central bank fanatics. Being alive after 1913 for this, these people has been horrible. Like they've been talking about the collapse of the United States of America and the dollar going down and gold going to 5,000 or 10,000 for many decades and it just doesn't happen. So you have really, these are tortured souls to see that people are waking up and they're going to their jobs and they're having kids and the dollar's still the reserve currency. So rule number one, anybody who talks about federal debt or the dollar collapsing has to convince me that Mexico is gonna overtake the US or Canada's just gonna buy the US. We are a $150 trillion financial asset uh, uh, GDP country. We have the biggest military world, we have the reserve currency, but the number one thing is that we have the prime age labor force demographics. Like millennials and uh, Gen Z together combined is more than the total population of Japan. So those people are gone. They've, they've completely lost their minds. Now, I think half of them don't actually believe this, but there are some people that are waiting for the big collapse of the United States of America where gold is gonna be used as a coin. So these orcs and trolls are gonna be at the border lines and we have to pay them off just to move the state. These people are Dungeons and Dragon kids that never grew up. And that's what happened. Debt goes, rates come down and greater growth of inflation has fallen. This is going around the world, right? Mature economies typically do not produce high levels of inflation. And that has been part of the problem. This is a cult. It is a terrible cult. They're bearish 24-7. They missed the longest economic expansion. They're going to miss this expansion. And I constantly make fun of them on, on, on Twitter finance. And most, <laughs> of, most of these people are what I call podcast stock traders. They're all long the markets, right? You know, part of the thing I did last year is like they always go, well, if I knew where the stock market was going, I'm going to retire in a beach. I've shown my returns from last April because guess what? I'm like, I'm riding it. We're going to have, the, we're going to have a comeback in 2020. 1,500% returns from one year from the bottom of last year market to now. And the only reason I do this is to stick it in their face because I say, why don't you show us your returns? Trust me, they're all long the markets. None of these people actually believe this stuff. It's a giant act because if they did, they'd be short the market. They'd be a long gold. Gold will go up to 10, 50. It just, it's never the case. These are the magnificent professional grifters of our lifetime. And just being alive after 1913 is just horrible for them that they have to wake up in the morning every day and the dollar didn't collapse and the United States of America is a functioning economy. So do you, so since you're, we're going to print all that money, right? So does that mean, are you a believer that interest rates have to remain low? Well, 
when you have economic growth and inflation expectations, typically rates and bond markets rise. Like my main call last year was that the 10 year yield is going to get to 1% by the end of 2020. And we're going to get, we're going to create a range in 2021, about 1.33 to 1.6 over the, it, we're, we're pretty much have done that. The problem with mortgage rates going up higher is that you need to create population growth, right? So population growth in the seventies was good. We had the oil shock and all that. There's where the interest rates, and then it's been going down. So we're not having the same amount of kids or the immigration like we did in the past. So we have great replacement virus, but our population growth is gonna be negative soon. Same thing would happen. We're, we're so far back behind Japan is that we're gonna keep on having tons of debt. The velocity of money is just not the same. And part of the issue is that if you really want inflation to take off, you need oil prices to go most likely 150 to 200. Uh, you need rent inflation to really take off. You need wage growth to really take off. Those are the things that drive inflation, but it's not in a sense where mortgage rates are going to go up. And remember, this has been, a, we've had four decades of almost everyone being wrong on this. And all they had to do is look at a chart of the 10 year yield and mortgage rates. This has been going down. So I just don't believe we're that kind of economy where we can have super growth all the time. And where are the population growth coming? We have great replacement buyers, but the world is stuck in a, uh, demographic down down spiral, which makes sense because we can never replace what we had in the last century, right? All the birth rates that we had last century, we're working from a higher bar. We can't ex you know grow on top of that, and that's the problem. That's why if you do births uh, versus population, you, it's just a completely downtrend, ten-year yield downtrend. You know, so unless you have a kind of a, a boom in population where you need to build all this stuff and you create inflation that way, it's very difficult for uh, mortgage rates like it's very for me it's like impossible to get even past six percent unless we fiscally stimulate the economy year in and year out and look at today 10-year yield 1.66 we just had the biggest year-over-year -year growth print in inflation in, in 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 more than 12 years we have what 28 29 trillion dollars of federal debt growth rates are now the fastest in many years where's the bond market doing bond market is the king right it knows it, it knows best we're not even above two percent so that mindset of federal debt is, has been wrong for many decades. So always be skeptical of these people. And most of them are what I call anti-central bank fanatics. These are the greatest American bearer people we'll ever have in our lifetime. They basically calling for the collapse of the United States of America. And it's just not happening. Even with federal debt moving from 1 trillion to 28 trillion, we are the outperforming country in the world. And we have the replacement uh, uh, workers because when baby boomers leave, there's no Dorian Gray labor force. They're gone. We replace them. Other countries, they don't got it. Baby boomers die. They have limit, uh, limited uh, replacement workforce. So their economy can't really grow as good as ours. And we kicked it in this year. And this is why everything had a V-shaped recovery in consumption. Uh, we have the replacement workers. They don't. Wow. Interesting. So, um, I kind of want to dive into a little bit more about real estate, but we were talking about another subject that's big. I think it'll be good is uh, we live in California and I, everybody's talking about this, you know, the great reset, the great migration. You know, everybody says, Oh my gosh, everybody's leaving California. They're all leaving. They're all going to Texas and Utah and Florida and everything. California's going to hell in a handbasket. Um, you live in Irvine, leave it in San Diego. So I, I want to get your thoughts on that. I've been hearing this since 1996. 
And I always, I, I, I always joke, it's my fellow conservatives who aren't leaving, right? <laughs> you know, they're not leaving. They're staying here. And, and I, I, I joke with them at the conferences. I go, why aren't you guys leaving your homes in Newport Beach and Corona del Mar and moving to the Midwest? You know what you can buy like 10 homes when you sell your home. So part of my work uh, going out is that years, thir- years 2020 to 2024, is like ages 30 or 39, naturally people are going to move because you know when you have kids, you just need to live in cheaper areas. But when we call about a mass exodus, um, you think about why does California have the biggest population? Well, there's 40 million people here. To have an exodus, you probably need at least 13 to 14 million people to leave within a two, uh, two to three year period to, uh, to, in that time frame. So we have people leave, some come in. You're going to get natural progression of people leaving anyway in this decade, just because uh, ages 30 or 39 is a time where you're, okay, I'm, I need to go something cheaper. But even in 2020 and 2021, we saw that the exodus from San Francisco was just eastern part of CA, which makes sense. It's much cheaper in the eastern part of CA. So it just haven't happened. And also one thing is that the California homeowners, if you look at them, right, especially those that are embedded in with Prop 13 and everything, they have so much nested equity. Their, their, their fixed low debt costs versus rising wages are good because there's no credit boom. There's no uh, a terrible credit loan products in the system. They're here, right? So you're going to get a natural progression of people leaving. But when we call about an exodus, it's just, it's not the same. Like California home sales came back, just like everywhere else. Like if you look at home sales everywhere, they all trend the same way. So I've, I remember in 2014 writing uh, at the BNY Mellon Stock Conference in a Bloomberg interview, I said 82% of the working population in California are priced out of housing once you exclude those who make two and a half times or three times median income. Well, guess what? The majority of home buyers, especially your water, make that kind of money. So I think people are what they call regional speculative bubbles that because rich people want to leave California, and that's why home prices were going to crash 40 or 50%. This would have, last year would have been the year. Didn't happen. This year would have been the year. Didn't happen, right? 2014 to 19, didn't happen. So the exodus theory has not created the big mega collapse in home prices, or even the, let's say, the tech workers that moved from San Francisco to Eastern part because it's hard for people to foreclose on their home when they have like 50% equity or they own their homes cash. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. You just, it doesn't work that way. Um, so be careful of the exodus because you have to look at scale. Like you can't have just a little people moving. So if California's home pop- population went to like 32 million, that's a major deal. It can't have the highest population uh, uh, in, the, in the United States and think about an exodus theory, right? Because there's a, here in Orange County, a lot of people go to Boise, Idaho. Boise, Idaho, home prices are really going uh, strong there. But that in scale terms with the population is just not big enough. So it, it, it's very, very expensive in CA, especially near water. You just have to realize that the people that own homes, like I live in zip code 92603. I always tell people, look in my neighborhood. 10 million, 5 million, 7 million, 3 million, 2 million, you know, three bedroom condos here are like 1 million. It's, you, you have to just be mindful that the people who buy these homes are typically really well off and they like it here. These aren't the exodus people, like people in the, like at the 50 to 71,000 income level, you see them leaving, makes complete sense, but they're just not big enough to create this titanic crash that people have been calling for for many years. Yeah, the word exodus seems like kind of like a dramatized way of saying we 
word reading. Um, but I, I did read, I forget where, but I read somewhere in the statistic that, you know, like you're saying, there's really not this mass exodus because there, of course, there's people moving in and out. People do that all the time. Maybe there's a little bit more now because, you know, why be in San Francisco in a tiny little apartment when you can go to have land somewhere in the outside when we're all in lockdown? But the amount of people moving in versus the amount of people moving out, like our population uh, decline is actually pretty slight in comparison. Yeah, that, that's why it's more of a marketing gimmick. But, you know, the like I remember in 2018, the salt deductions and people were convinced that's it. The California market is over. All these people have to sell their homes. Home prices are going to crash 30 or 40 percent. Mortgage rates went up to 5 percent. It cooled the market down and adjusting to inflation, the equivalence of rent. You know, in 2019, home prices were negative, but nominal home prices weren't. So it wasn't even salt. It was actually just mortgage rates cooled the market down, but it, it never had to collapse. Why? Because homeowners now are in a much better situation. So you can't assume that people who make two to $300,000 and have really good jobs and healthcare and stock options, all that they're all going to foreclose just to justify the trolling of the big collapse of home prices in California that's been going on for seven years. So a question for you. So I mean, I think uh, you did loans. I do loans. I think a lot of I think a lot of people are debating now. They're like, I'm renting. I'm in, I'm in California. They've got the money. The market. They see everybody are paying. They're like, is this a good time to buy or not? Should I wait? Is it you know? Is there going to be more inventory because the foreclosures? I mean, what would you just tell somebody if they're your friend and they ask this question? Should I wait? I've had the same answer to this for many years. Housing is the cost of shelter to your own capacity to own the debt. More Americans are buying homes now in 2020 and 2021 than any period in 2008 to 2019. So people are doing it. If you are debating it, that means it's your own financial uh, situation because other people are doing it. So I always say that at some point you got to put your big boy pants on and make that decision on your own because other Americans are doing it. And if you're not doing it, most likely it's because you're not financially ready yet. And a lot of people come to me, I'm going to wait. Like I've heard this a lot. I'm going to wait until home prices fall 10% or the market cool down. Most of those people, a, a lot of them aren't even home buyers, but most of them to me just can't compete. And that's, that's why I say this is an unhealthy housing market. Just on the economic side, you have underlying demand. So you see these multiple bids. Like it's one thing to be outbid by one or two people. When you're getting outbid by 11 to 15 people, it drains on you, right? So it's not your issue that you just don't have the supply there. And that's the frustrating part is that these, some of these people are ready to go. They just can't win. So I think if there was more inventory, the question wouldn't even be asked. They're just buying a home, right? Because it's the payment that you're buying. And that's the difference is that a lot of people are, why would you buy a house if your home prices are going to fall five to 10%? Americans don't think that way. Stock traders think that way, right? But Americans, if 2020 and 2021 hasn't convinced you this, that people just buy homes as shelter, because you have your choice. You're either homeless, you make $200,000, you're homeless, or you're renting, right? So if you, if you have the capacity to own the debt or the payment, it's a no-brainer. There's problem now is that you have people that want to buy a house, they just can't. Your fellow Americans make more money than you and they have more financial assets. That's a very tough pill to swallow, thinking about, I've got 20% down, I, I'm, you're getting beat. 
And that's the frustration part for me is that you see this great demographic patch. And the worst thing is that inventory has collapsed. Like if you look at total inventory now compared to even the bubble years, much lower. So hopefully my thing is that if rates go up a little bit higher, it cools the market down to have more days on the market. That's my thing right now is that once you get more days on the market, there's more choices for people. And then the market kind of takes care of itself at that point. But here you just have an inventory crunch. You don't have a credit boom in 2021, but you have these home prices because what people make money, the people who make money typically buy homes. They don't think like stock traders and that's what 2021 is right now. So we're, um, so we're actually, we're at active real estate investors, primarily multifamily in California. Um, and I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people, it's funny. We, uh, talk to a lot of real estate investors all over the country. They, they're not fans of California. Um, they, they are like, look, I love to live there. They, they don't like the regulations. They don't like, it's not business friendly. They're worried about rent control and too much government. Um, they think like, you know, it's not a good cash flow state, stuff like that. I kind of wanted to talk to you, same kind of question, but turn it more to investment properties. Uh, if somebody's coming to you saying, you know, is this a good time to buy an investment property, specifically in California, what your thoughts would be on that? Here's one thing about uh, multifamily. I, I get this question a lot. If you actually look at multifamily construction uh, in America, it's basically been flat since 2015. If you look at single family rentals, flat since 15. Builders typically do not want to build multifamily construction because the money is really made in single family. So now you have this big gap between single family starts and multifamily construction. And also COVID has created this environment where people aren't getting paid, right? Yeah. They're not getting paid. So uh, you can see why multifamily construction is not doing well. Um, we have a barbell economy where you have a lot of money on one side, you have the middle class, and then you have one third of the economy that will never be able to buy homes ever. They're lifetime renters. So there's always gonna be demand for renting forever. Right, because naturally there's a group of there's a group of people their wages do not constitute uh, to be a homeowner. So whether it's California, whether it's Alabama, Kansas, Texas, there is a there is a level of renting demand that'll be stable. Uh, um, you post COVID, I just I just think that there's there's mom and pop landlords who who've never done this who are just like get me the hell out of this thing. <laughs> I, I just do not want any of this out here. Like for myself, I have a rental unit, it's paid off. I haven't charged rent for my tenant since March of 2020. Right? Wow. Not a lot of people can do that financially, but so I'm 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 anticipating some landlords who just you know, they're, do, they're doing well financially. Now they're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm stressed. Uh, they'll probably let that go. In California, you have what I call a mid-tier income level that you can make like 80 or $90,000 here in California and not be able to buy. Yeah. That is what we call the, the level renter here. So that would be the demand curve, right? It's people that make good money, but you just, uh, unless they have a dual household income and assets, they're typically not going to be buyers. So it's much different. Like California is its own beast. Like yeah. you, I, we cannot like for myself, like talking about Irvine, California, I never like to use Irvine, California compared to, cause I think there's, there's nothing like this here, right? There's no other, there is no other state that has these kind of uh, 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 financials. So 
you have to look at California in a different way. And I always think that it's the mid-tier income person that would be the highest income brackets in the Midwest are kind of a lifetime renter to a degree unless they get married. Because remember, there's a big difference now than let's say in the previous decades, you have dual household income or what we call them dice, double income, college educated American household. You put them together, wow, they they can buy a home. But the singles in the kind of the lower income bracket, in the 60 to 100,000 renters for a while, you know, then when they get married, you have two incomes, then you buy a house. So it's a much different rental profile here, especially near water. Of course, when you go out east, you know, you could do the duplex or whatever, you know, it's a much different uh, profile there. So there's always a, what we call a renter financial profile in this country, because in a barbell economy, you naturally have that. You're not going to have like, you know, everyone be a homeowner in this sense. So that demand is there. Again, every investor has to do their kind of own homework with their own cash flow. Some people have a lot more cash than others. Some people, uh, uh, you know, I get this question, why aren't big investors selling their homes ever? You know, they're sitting on, well, interest rates are low, right? You can't get much on cash. You can't get much on CDs, bonds, anything like that. So rental yield for them looks good. In their portfolio, that's why they do it, right? They don't really care so much about the capital gains. And that's why we haven't seen this mass exodus of real estate investors over the years, uh, uh, because the the cash flow for them, for their portfolio or their finances makes sense because they don't have another, uh, uh, an asset, another asset to purchase that would get them that kind of yield unless you really want to go into the junk bond area, which is somewhat risky for some people. So that's that's how for I, I try to explain to people why aren't investors selling because the rental yield is so good. And going forward, shelter inflation, rents are going to come up, right? I think they bought them about two months ago. When everybody starts to working again, you're going to see rent inflation, especially when wage growth picks up. It's beneficial for, for landlords because you can charge a little bit more rent on that side. So that has kind of bottomed and I'm anticipating all the jobs that we lost to COVID-19, which are primarily still tilted to renter financial profiles to come back by September of 2022 or earlier because the demand is better there. We just have to be able to walk the earth freely. Like we're getting there. We're not there yet. But once that happens, the rest of the uh, 8 million uh, people that are uh, unemployed will get their employment back. Again, we have over 144 million people working where uh, February 2020 is about 152 million. Job openings are over 8 million now. We have about 8.2 million unemployed. We'll get there. The demand is there. We just got to be able to get more people vaccinated and travel and do all the things we normally do in this country. And then the rent inflation should pick up. Nice. Um, I'm going to throw a word out. just want to get your opinion on it. Crypto. It's funny. I, I rarely talk about crypto. The funny part is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So my mortal enemy for life are the gold bugs and the crypto people make fun of the gold bugs. The gold bugs are like elderly men and women who are just waiting for, the, for America to collapse. So what I tell people about crypto is that it's not a currency. It's a asset that has a very slow supply held by very few amount of people. And the, in that environment, the price can escalate, right? I think Mark Cuban said a really good thing about uh, Dogecoin, you know, that it's a supply and demand issue. Not many people own 
uh, crypto. There are a few people that have it. You don't see the utilization rates very high. So in that sense, it's not that big of a deal on the economic side. Yeah. I know the, 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 the market cap values are high, but people don't use crypto enough for it to be anything. Now, for some reason, a lot of crypto people are getting really interested in real estate. So I've got more crypto followers. So to me, it's less like some of them actually want to transfer some of their crypto into a hard asset uh, because, you know, everyone goes back to dollars, right? Because <laughs> you, you can't sit there and like supposedly all these crypto investors, they should all be retired. Like if I retired in one year, they should, but they just don't own enough. But there, there's a small amount. I think like 4,000 people in the world own most of the uh, Bitcoin in the world. So that's just not big enough in a 7 billion uh, uh, population for it to mean anything. But there are people out there that want to transfer it. If it happens, if it does, time will tell. But I, outside of that, it really doesn't have any economic meaning to me, whether the price goes to 50 or it goes to 4. Uh, there's just not enough utilization on it to really mean anything into the economic data lines. But it's it's just funny for me to see them go after the gold bugs because. Oh, for sure. Oh, it's like a battle. Makes yeah. me smile because the gold bugs are just an elderly group that are their time is uh, they don't have they don't have much time left for their dollar collapse. And it just makes me smile every day. Yeah, I saw a good debate with Peter Schiff and I think uh, Pomp or something. It's it's just funny. It's just like yeah. Peter Schiff is the biggest American troll ever. <laughs> I know. I, I tell people he is. I don't think Peter believes in his stuff, right? You know, I remember. I remember somebody told him that too. Somebody in the debate said, "I don't think believe believe your own things. I think you're just so far down the road you can't go back." Like you know, like Peter Schiff did a recent tweet talking about the dollar is going to collapse and yada yada, and I just retweeted what. Peter said in March of uh, September of 2009, I took his own words. I said, dollar is doomed. Stock market is going to crash. Gold to 5,000. Move it to 2021. The dollar never collapsed. It actually has increased from 2015. It's never yeah. lost at this level. Uh, the stock market's at pretty much all-time highs. And gold is not at 5,000. So he's a professional grifter. I'm pretty sure he doesn't believe himself because if he did, his investment portfolio would be different. First of all, it would be, it'd be down. So he's just people have to realize that that it's an act. Like he lives in Puerto Rico. Like I remember visiting one of my favorite resorts there. Like he's like his neighbors with Ricky Martin, and people were saying, "Oh, your friend Prier's here." I was like, "He's not my friend. Is he living here?" <laughs> no, come on. He's just a professional troll, and then he's got he's got his kid. His kid is actually arguing him. So it's 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 an act. Just remember, most gold bugs don't actually believe them stuff because if they did, they'd be broke, right? Yeah. So it's just a trolling act. And he's him and Harry Dent, like Harry Dent's awful. Oh, God. Harry Dent is like, like I, Harry Dent and Peter Schiff like went at each other one time and it was just like, wow, two of the most incorrect human beings. Perfect, right? This is perfect out here. So if, as long as people realize this is a marketing tactic, not an actual economic tactic, then you don't get seduced by the, well, Peter Schiff said the U.S. is going to collapse in 2009. Peter Schiff says the U.S. is going to collapse in 2012, 14, 15, 17, 18. The dollar typically makes its biggest percentage move before the first Fed rate hike that happened in 2015, and it stayed there. Nothing happened. The U.S. is the only economic superpower left. We're not going to lose our currency in Mexico by America or Canada or Japan. It's all just marketing. What's your, uh, what, What's your biggest, two questions. What's your biggest concern with the market overall? 
And what's your, what are you most excited about? So the biggest concern is the, uh, the same concern I've always had in this, in this period is years 2020 to 24, home prices have the capacity to take off. So I said about in a five-year period, I give about 4.6% nominal home price gains each year. And as long as it's 23% in a five-year period, we escape this period without major uh, home price inflation. That's been blown abroad. We're just blowing through that. We're almost there even if, if home price growth still stays here. So I believe that higher rates, and I even wrote this last year for housing, just cools the market down. My fear is actually when, and I'm not even talking about like much higher, I'm talking about 3.75% and up. Yeah, because a little bit, yeah. Yeah, if you just look in the previous expansion, that has been our uh, pressure uh, re release right there. Rates go up about 4%, home prices cool down, millions of people buy homes a year, there's no class. COVID has taken that away from us. So we have all this really good economic data, but the mortgage rates are like still 3%. So my fear is that you get price escalation for this five-year period, not at 23%, but at 50%. So that is that takes away from future uh, uh, affordability power. So that's my biggest concern. What I'm always excited about is, is, is what I've been talking for a long time. Uh, from the next three decades, America is going to flex its American muscle by its demographic patch. We have a lot of replacement buyers and consumers. Other countries don't. We're actually the only uh, country that has, I mean, there's some younger countries like India and Africa, but for a mature economy, we're the only growing prime age labor force. So it's going to be different uh, to a degree compared to other countries. And uh, like we own this for the next three decades. We had a prime age labor force peak in 2007, a little decline, and we just worked our way up. So it's fun for me to see how much does America outperform other economies when we have this replacement buyer demographic muscle. I like it. Where I got one more question for that. Where's the best place for people to learn more about you, view you? I know you're doing a lot of stuff. Okay, so my just my name, Logan Moshami. Uh, Twitter's open to the public. My my personal blog is always open to the public. There's no ads, no nothing like that. Uh, housing wires where my where my analyst work is, and they 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 you have to purchase the HW Plus content. Uh, it's a couple hundred dollars, I think, for the entire year. That's where a lot of the an analytical work in there. But my blog is free. Instagram is free. I do stories on Twitter and Instagram each day. And it's overall economic data. Like, like even though people know me as a housing person, I live and breathe about economic cycles. And we go over everything. Like, if you really want to get bored by data and charts, I'm your guy. I am not <laughs> person. I will bore you to death. But economics done right is boring, right? Should be boring. Uh, but... Uh, just my name and you can see everything publicly. And again, my job is to teach, right? I just want to teach economics to the point to where people can understand and get the noise out of here, right? Because these people have to do this for their own business models. I don't, I'm retired. Don't need to do any of that. Don't have to charge right. anything. So I just want to do that for the rest of my life at 45. I'm just going to do that for the rest of life to teach economics, to show people the pathway, connect the dots out there, be the detective not the troll. Love it. I love that. So a final question we always ask all of our guests is, what is your definition of generational wealth? Well, generational wealth is your liquid net assets, right, after debt. Um, if you can actually, to me, if you could live off of that for five years without getting income, then to me, you have what is the kind of the liquid net uh, asset 
to produce a better life. And what happens is that people in America work, we work always, we work until we, uh, until we can't. If you have the ability to create wealth over time, uh, your life is gonna be much more easier you know, in the 50s or 60s and 70s. So whatever you create in your 20s and 30s and 40s, as long as you don't gamble it off, slow and steady wins the race, right? You know, uh, and once you get to build past like five years of net wealth where you could just live off of that, where, whatever age you do that on, you just grow that over time. And when you get to your 60s and 70s, you're going to be in a much different place than a lot of people who are just relying on social security just for their uh, 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 primary income or they're working much longer. So that is the benefit of net asset wealth is that uh, in your elderly years, uh, you can live off of that on top of social security, on top of everything else, whatever you have, you're set. And I think that's the benefit of people that create wealth at a younger age over time. It, it, it pays off compared to people. And some of that is just like, some people just don't have the capacity to create that kind of wealth. So slow and steady always wins the race in this category. And we have a hundred years of history that show that. Nice. Well, appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on. Um, I love that you're passionate about um, all this stuff, all the economics, the data, the charts. I don't think it's boring or geeky. I think uh, people, they're, like you said, they're looking to be entertained, but I think some people need to spend more time on just getting more educated and making better financial decisions based on facts, not emotions or somebody trying to sell a story. Um, but we'd love to do this again with you too, because I think there's so many other themes and topics we could discuss, but I uh, appreciate your time and uh, thanks for coming on. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>